0: Dear Father, we want to thank you, Lord, for a time of worship and a time of uh, fellowship and prayer. Thank you for this congregation, this building, and all that makes possible our meeting. Most of all, Father, we thank you that you have gifted each of us with a faith that saves and with a spirit that edifies and teaches. We thank you, Lord, that you have uh, skilled those who have served us here in a way that they can encourage our hearts. And we thank you, Father, that you have a work that you intend to do in each of us, that as we may become distracted in the, the busyness of trying to begin and build a church body. We don't want to overlook the real work, Father, the work that you do inside each of us and with each of us so that we might serve one another. For it does not matter, Father, how big we get, how visible we are, and how remarkable our achievements may be to us. What matters, Father, is who we become that we be like you, that we think and act as much like you as we can this side of heaven, that we are your disciples, learning at your feet, and seeking, Father, to be your hands and feet in a world that desperately needs to know you. We thank you, Father, that you brought us here tonight, and that you have given us an opportunity to make a step in that direction through study of your word. Father, as I endeavor to open it, as I endeavor to teach it, Fill me with your spirit. Teach through me by your grace. And as I misspeak, as I will do from time to time, I pray, Father, that in the minds of those who hear, the ears that hear, Father, would be corrected supernaturally, that you would give them the truth that I could not, so that they would glorify you in what they learn. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 5 of Matthew. Let's open our Bibles. Let's return there to Jesus' examples of illustrating how it is that true righteousness works. We've been looking at this now for a little while. But because we've been in here for a while, I don't want to forget the big picture. That is, what is it we're looking at in this chapter overall? And the easiest way I can say it is that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is a gigantic resetting of Israel's understanding of what it takes to enter the kingdom. Or for those of you who may be new, in this context, kingdom is another way of saying heaven. So entering the kingdom, Jesus said, requires living a life that was even more righteous than that of the Pharisees, the religious leaders who stood at the head of the class in Israel's day. Jesus said it required living according to the spirit of what God says in His Word, not merely following some man-made rules that people tell you are equivalent to what God wants. And in the second half of this chapter, where we find ourselves now, Jesus has six examples of what that higher standard actually looks like. Last week we learned a couple of them. We looked at the spirit behind the sixth commandment that says, Thou shalt not murder. Jesus uses this example. And when he does, he shows us that following that commandment goes a lot deeper than just avoiding taking someone else's life. The true intent of that law was that you would be loving to other people. And that's a lot harder to do. And then when he said that God said, Thou shalt not commit adultery, Jesus said, that doesn't just mean you don't fool around on your spouse. He said, it means staying faithful to your spouse, in your heart, mind, soul, and strength. In fact, don't even let your eyes stray. Again, that's a much tougher standard than simply saying, I won't commit adultery. Now, there are still four more examples in this chapter that we want to study, and we're going to examine them. We're going to examine three of the four today. The fourth one really is a nice segue into chapter six. So we're going to look at that one as we move into six next week. And as we look at them, we're going to see how Jesus uses them to continue to refute the Pharisees and refute their teaching. But we've already done this now for a little while, and we've seen how the Pharisees are perverting the Word of God. We see what Jesus' point is. And so even as we cover it, I'm going to shift a little bit in my focus. For the final examples, I want to focus more on the heart of each of these issues as they apply more to us than perhaps to the Pharisaic issues of his day. I want you to be asking this question with us as we study. I want you to ask am I thinking like Pharisees on some of these issues myself? Am I guilty of setting aside the Word of God and ignoring God's heart in these matters so that I can pursue my own rules in place of them? And I don't think we do that in a very conscious way, maybe. We don't sit down to do that. We don't write our plan to do that. I I get it. But I think we end up doing it without intending to. And so I want you to think about these things from that perspective. So let's begin with the first of our four examples. It's in Matthew chapter 5. We pick up... In verse 31, Jesus says, It was said, Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Alright, so, light teaching today. This is Jesus' third example, and obviously he wades in on the issue of divorce. He's comparing what the Pharisees taught concerning this topic compared to what God says about this topic in the Scriptures. And let me just begin by acknowledging that divorce is a sensitive and emotionally charged issue. I dare say few, if anybody in this room, has not had their lives touched by divorce in some way, either through friends or family or in your own life. It's always painful. It's always uh, unfortunate consequences. I know that. But it is still important that we understand what the Bible's perspective is on this topic. So even as we may want to be very careful in this area, and obviously very kind and, and sensitive, at the same time, I don't want to shrink back from what it says. And I, I have a feeling that the kind of people who come to a church like this wouldn't want me to shrink back from the truth. And that's, that's my intent. But I also want to say this. In this chapter, Jesus uses the example of divorce to make a larger point. Divorce is not his main point in this chapter, no more than murder or adultery were in the earlier examples. And so I am not going to make divorce the main point here either. Later in this gospel, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus comes back to this topic because the Pharisees put it before him with a question. And in that chapter, he does spend some time on it. And that's the better place for us to spend time on it as well. And so I'm going to wait to address the full range of things you could say on this topic for chapter 19. That's a long way off. Most of you guys won't even be here by then, so it doesn't make any difference. But for now, let's focus on understanding why he raises this example and how he intends us to use it in the context of contending with the Pharisees and their bad rules. He starts by quoting from the Mishnah. Now, I'm not going to repeat the teaching of the Mishnah. We've done that now. But I just want to point out, he introduces it again with that phrase, it was said. That's a way of indicating he's quoting from the oral law, the Mishnah, not from the written word of God. And he says, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That's a paraphrasing of Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 through 4. And in that passage in Deuteronomy, Moses commands that a man who divorces his wife Must send her away with a certificate of divorce. But Jesus says, in contradiction to that, he says, whoever divorces his wife makes her commit adultery. Now, to understand how those two statements relate, we're going to have to learn a little bit about the culture of Jesus's day. In the ancient East of this time, women had no legal standing. Generally speaking, they could not own land, they could not own a business, they couldn't testify in court. They couldn't enter into contracts. Seriously, a woman had virtually no way to support herself in that culture. In fact, even if she had, let's say, inherited land, or her husband had died and she had a farm, the problem was that women generally didn't possess enough upper body strength to work the land in the way that it had to be worked in that day and age. And so they couldn't even do the labor themselves that they needed to, to live off the land. So they had no way to provide. And therefore, women basically relied on men to survive. That is, economically. During the first part of a woman's life, she lived in her father's home, and she depended on her father for support. When she would get married, then she'd move under her husband's authority in his home, and then he supported her. If she was widowed, she'd move in with her son, or she'd move in with a with her husband's brother, a brother-in-law, or something like that. But always under somebody's authority, and therefore their provision. But if that woman's husband lost interest in her and kicked her out of the house... She faced a very desperate situation under those circumstances because not only was her marriage falling apart, which is bad enough, she was at risk of losing her only means of support. She would be set out of the house in that day for a man to do this. They typically would just kick the woman out with the the clothes on her back and that's it. There's there's no alimony. There's no child support. There's not going to be a divorce settlement. That kind of stuff didn't happen back then. The woman had no rights. And generally speaking, she wouldn't go back to her father's house either because she was considered the property of her husband. There had been a dowry paid at the time of the wedding. Now, to make matters worse, the woman was still considered married. So that would mean that no other man would consider giving her any shelter either, because a respectable man would never spend private time in his own home in the company of a woman who was married to another man. He'd be liable to be accused of adultery if he did that. So she was persona non grata. No one would touch her. And so that's the concern that Jesus is referring to here. A woman abandoned by her husband was literally without hope. Unfortunately, that did happen quite a bit in ancient culture. You had hard-hearted and cruel men who abandoned their wives. they do it simply because they got bored with her or they didn't like her anymore. They found someone better. And they would leave these poor women destitute and helpless without a means of support. And that kind of a woman was in real danger. She was in danger of either starvation or abuse or death by exposure. I mean, can you imagine? We don't have that in our culture, so in in some ways it's hard to understand this, but in that day, that's how life went. And therefore, a woman in those circumstances, her best chance of survival was to depend on the mercy of strangers or maybe family members, maybe eke out a meager life as a beggar. If you know the story of Ruth and Naomi, they're in that situation. That's why they are in such a desperate set of circumstances in that story. So, to correct that injustice, God said to Israel in Deuteronomy 24, that if a man was determined to divorce his wife, he must give her a certificate of divorce. That meant that the man couldn't just kick her out with nothing. He had to give her this piece of paper that indicated he was separating from her legally. And with that certificate of divorce, then a woman had a reasonable chance. I'm not sure how strong a chance, but she had some chance to find a man who might take pity on her and marry her and thereby support her. Another man could take that woman as a wife now without fear of adultery because this certificate effectively made her eligible to marry again. That was the idea of the law. But if you read that law carefully in Deuteronomy 24, you will see clearly that the Lord was not approving of the man's decision to divorce his wife. He was simply commanding the man to show mercy to his victim, which was his wife. God did not intend therefore that Deuteronomy 24 and this provision of a certificate would become license to engage in divorce and remarriage. It was simply the case of providing for the victim. And it's very similar to another law. Let me give you another example. In Exodus 22:16, the Lord says this, "If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged and he lies with her, he must pay a dowry for her to be his wife." The law said that a man who seduces a woman outside of marriage must pay a dowry to that woman's family so that he could then marry her. We have an old saying that we say to make her an honest woman. To make her a married woman after the fact. Now, Scripture is abundantly clear about how this issue is viewed by God. Sex with a woman before you marry her is always a sin. 100% of the time. It's called fornication in the Bible. Now, Our culture thinks that's old-fashioned. The Word of God never changes, thankfully. But in Exodus 22, God addresses the aftermath of fornication because he knew sinful people were still going to do it. He told them not to, but they're still going to do it. So what he said was, I'm obliging the man to make amends for his sin by marrying the woman that he just took illegitimately. That's what God is saying to Israel. So obviously, if you go to Exodus 22:16, you can't come away from that saying, oh, God thinks it's okay to have fornication because he made allowance for it. No, God just found a way to make the best of a bad situation because He knew people were going to make the mistake. And what Pharisees had done with Deuteronomy 24, back to the subject of divorce now, what the Pharisees had done with Deuteronomy 24 in the Mishnah is they had looked at that license, that certificate that God said you had to give to a woman when you divorce her. They looked at that and they said, oh, that's a license to divorce. That's God effectively approving Divorce as a legitimate alternative to staying married. They assumed that God wouldn't have made an allowance for this certificate if He didn't have a sense that it should be used, if He didn't have an agreement with it. That was their thinking. So what did you think the Pharisees did with that in their Mishnah? Well, they then set about to define in their Mishnah, in the oral law, all the many reasons why you could justify getting a divorce. And you can see where this is going, right? Over the years, that list got longer as more men came along and said, you know, I have another reason why I think I should be able to divorce my wife. None of these reasons are found in Scripture, of course. The rabbis just imagined them. And just to give an example of where they eventually landed on some of these things, the most ridiculous of these rules said that a husband could justifiably divorce his wife if she burned his soup. I'm not making that one up. That's in the Mishnah. With rules like that, it's kind of obvious that men were just looking for reasons that they could end marriage whenever they wanted to end the marriage. Why do they think it's legitimate? How do they believe God would approve that? Well, because God said you can give a woman a certificate of divorce. All right. Now, silly as all that seems, the Pharisees always told Israel their oral law, all these rules I'm talking about, they always said they're equal to Scripture. And ironically, their rules were supposedly about limiting Divorce to only certain circumstances. And yet it's because of those rules that it became easier and easier for men in Israel to do the very thing that God says in His Word He hates, which is divorce. And all the while they just assume, God's approving of what I'm doing here because He said, I can give a certificate to my wife. So here's Jesus now setting the record straight on that practice. In verse 32, Jesus says, Despite Deuteronomy 24, despite what they wrote in the Mishnah, Everyone who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery. Now, given the background I gave you earlier about a woman's standing in the culture, I think you get a better understanding now of why he says the man is, quote, making her commit adultery. Do you see how that's true now? Because by ending the marriage, the husband is essentially forcing his wife to seek shelter under another man's roof through a new marriage. And so in that sense, he's making her commit adultery because her only other option was starvation. But even more challenging than that, look what he also says. Jesus says that when that next man comes along in pity for that woman, or just in love, whatever, and sees that she has this certificate, and decides, oh, okay, I'll marry her. Look what he says. He says that man commits adultery also. Now that probably shocked the crowd listening to Jesus in his day. I'm not sure how it affects you now, but I assure you in that day, It was not what they thought he would say. Because everyone in Jesus' day assumed that that new husband was in the clear because the woman came with that certificate of divorce. You know, that little magic piece of paper that they said takes care of all the problems. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. You see, that certificate didn't change the situation from God's point of view. That certificate was simply intended to make the best of a bad situation by preserving the life of the woman. That certificate didn't actually end the first marriage vows. It just gave the woman a chance for survival because if the choice is going to be between the woman's death and her committing adultery, adultery is the better of those two options, God is saying. Neither are good, but one is better than the other one. And so that certificate doesn't mean that the marriage that existed has ceased. Adultery is still adultery. The husband's choice to divorce his wife was sin. It led to a chain of sin, because the next thing that happened was the wife committed adultery, which led another man to have to be put into a position to commit adultery. And so we could summarize his teaching by saying this, if you want to please God, honor your marriage as a lifelong bond. For that's how God sees it. As I like to say to my kids, or used to say to some kids, I said, one wife per life, one man is God's plan. Or as some have said, you get one bite at the apple when it comes to marriage. Now you probably noticed in verse 32, Jesus mentions an exception. And I'm going to wait until chapter 19 to discuss that exception in detail, because he gives more detail in chapter 19, and it's worth waiting for that. Also because I don't want you to hate me more than you already do at this point. But I do want to make one point as you look at it. Grammatically speaking, in that sentence, Jesus' exception applies to the second half of the verse, not the first half. We could reword the sentence this way. Everyone who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery except in the case of unchastity. In other words, he's simply saying a husband can't be guilty of making his wife commit adultery if she's already beaten him to it. If she's already committed adultery first, well then he's not guilty of making her commit adultery. He's only going to be guilty of divorcing her. But it's not an exception for whether you can get divorced or not. We'll cover that more in chapter 19. One last thing I want to say on this topic, because if I don't, I think I'm not doing a service to us in this room. While the Bible is clear on divorce being a sin, it is not an unforgivable sin. And it is not worse than any other sin. Remember earlier in this chapter, Jesus said that those who have called a person a fool have broken the sixth commandment against murder. Remember that? And he said that those who have lusted have broken the commandment against adultery. So I want, a, I want a true show of hands here. If you keep your hand down, I'm going to ask you why later. How many of you have hated a person? Put your hand up if you've hated a person. How many of you have lusted? Put the other hand up. Okay. Some of us in this room have divorced. But I ask everyone in this room, is the sin of divorce worse than your violations of the 6th and 7th commandments that you just put your hand up to? Are they in worse trouble than you? Have they done worse things than you? And more importantly, did Jesus die to cover the sin of divorce or only to cover your sins? Obviously, He died for all of us because we all have sin, no matter what kind. And so we all have, no we, none of us have, a basis for judging anyone in the body of Christ concerning their life circumstances or concerning their past. We all stand by the grace of God, in the atoning work of Christ. And so the only priority we ought to have as a church on this topic or any other is to encourage everyone to learn what the Bible has to say on that topic so that we can all just do better in the future. That's the goal in this. Not recrimination, not stratifying who's better than who. If it goes there, we've really missed the point of what Jesus is trying to say. But at the same time, I don't help anyone in this room by soft peddling what's in the Bible by obscuring it so you don't have to feel bad about your background, or so that someone else doesn't feel guilty or whatever. Look, friends, you read the Bible long enough, it's going to catch everybody. And equally so. And it needs to. Because if what you think about yourself is you're pretty good, you need to read your Bible more. Jesus is good, you're not. Because he lives in you, you're good to go. But you're not good. There's a big difference, right? People always talk about the need for more self-esteem. It's a complete lie from the enemy. You've got lots of self-esteem. You've got more than you need. What you need is Christ-esteem. And and that will change you, right? So when we get on subjects like this that can be tough, and I acknowledge they are, and no one's perfect, we also have to recognize that if we change the truth to make ourselves feel better about ourselves, we're becoming less Christ-like, not more Christ-like. And this is one of those good examples. All right, so Jesus has made the point, right? Let's move on to the next example, chapter 5, verse 33. He says, again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be, yes, yes, no, no. Anything beyond this? is of evil. All right, so the next example begins again with our telltale phrase, you have heard, here again, indicating he's quoting from the Mishnah. And in this case, he quotes the Mishnah's command concerning taking oaths. Now, in the written word of God, the word said in Numbers 30, that we are obliged to keep our vows. And in Leviticus, the Lord warns Israel that if they fail to keep their vows, even if they do it unintentionally, like you made a vow and you forgot it. Nevertheless, he says, there will be consequences The consequences of of what you vowed will come upon you. You In ancient times, written contracts weren't common. People didn't make the effort. They didn't have the materials. So a verbal agreement was generally speaking the way you conducted business with anyone. And those verbal agreements were solemn. you You didn't just say things idly. If you said it, it had to go as you said. And if a man wasn't found trustworthy, no one would do business with him. So people's word was their bond. Now we have contracts now, of course. We do things differently. We have lawyers now. Thank goodness we have lawyers now. Otherwise, we'd have to just trust on our own word. If there's lawyers in the room. I come from a family of lawyers, so I I feel your pain. But the truth is, though we have lawyers and we have contracts, this principle has not changed, and it's still very applicable today. For example, when you sign a note for a loan, you're vowing, essentially, to repay that note. It's a vow. It's an oath. When you enlist in the military, you are vowing to faithfully serve out that obligation honorably. When you stand in a witness stand and take an oath to tell the truth, you're obligated to tell the truth. And speaking of marriage for a moment, in that ceremony, you vow to remain married for life. By the way, and God says, you have to keep your vow or you suffer a consequence. At least that's what he told Israel. But of course, what do the Pharisees do here again? They take the spirit of that and they run off... And they start writing all these rules about keeping oaths and breaking oaths. And sooner or later, the oral law expands to the point where it's actually encouraging the opposite behavior of what the real law God gave us was supposed to do. In the oral law, they invented... Uh, this is so typical of Pharisees. I actually love this example if you just want to tell people how Pharisees thought. They invented an array of ways that you could take an oath, and they imagine an equal variety of ways in which you could break an oath or in which they could be excused. So let me give you some examples. These are the things the Pharisees created. It's all part of an elaborate system of determining whether an oath was binding or not. And the binding nature of your oath depended on what the promisor swore by. It's what you said, I swear by such and such. That determined whether what you said was binding. So for example, if they swore by God's name... Well, then the Pharisees said, oh, that's always binding because uh, God is eternal. That was their logic. And on the other hand, if you swore by heavens and earth, no, that's not binding because the heavens and the earth will one day pass away. That's their logic. They said, if a man swore his oath while facing Jerusalem, he has to keep that oath. If he says it while his back is to Jerusalem, he doesn't have to keep that oath. If he swore a certain way, at a certain time, in a certain place, you know, all these things started to compile so that if someone gave you an oath in the course of some business deal, you had to sit there for a minute and think, did you cover any exception there? I've got to think, did you face the right way? Did you say it the right way? What did you swear on again? Because it was all a gigantic game. The effects of all these rules was to encourage deceit and fraud in business dealings. Because a man could construct his oath in such a way that he knew it would not be binding in the end, but he hoped that the other party wouldn't notice so that he could get out of his word when he wanted to. Only later would the victim discover when he tried to take the man to court that the Pharisees would say, oh no, that, that particular oath, that's not binding. It's the equivalent of small print in contract. I'll give you one quick example. In Acts twenty three forty. there's a story of 40 Jewish men who want to kill Paul while he's in Jerusalem, and they take a vow not to eat or drink until they kill Paul. Which means they got a very short timetable to get that thing done, right? And in the end, Paul escapes. They don't get to kill him. But you don't hear anything more about them and their vow. And you have to wonder, what happened to those guys? Well, let me assure you, they didn't die. Because there was a rule in the Mishnah, an exception called restraint. And that rule said that if you were restrained or prevented from fulfilling your vow, then you were excused from that vow. Which basically meant anything could happen. And you could say, I, I slept in. I was restrained. I couldn't, I couldn't keep my vow. It's complete nonsense, right? Now, of course, Jesus denounces the Mishnah's stupid rules on oaths in verse 34. Notice how he brings out some of these examples I just mentioned. In verse 34, Jesus says, swearing by heaven is just as binding as swearing by God himself, because heaven is the throne of God. And in verse 35, he says, swearing by earth is equally binding as swearing by God, because it's the footstool of God's feet. And regarding which way you face... Swearing by Jerusalem is always binding because it's the city of the kingdom. He's mocking their own rules. Now, he's not validating the rules. He's not buying into that whole silly system. He's simply showing how ludicrous their logic is. Once again, God made something very clear in his law. And then later in this so-called oral law, the Pharisees took the spirit of what God said and perverted it for their own purposes. They contrived a set of rules that turned God's word on its head, and it made divorce easy when it wasn't supposed to happen. It made breaking a vow easy when you're never supposed to do it. And they called these things an oral law, so that people thought they had the weight of Scripture, and they just fooled everyone, and no one was pleasing God. It's a complete train wreck of religious rule-keeping. In the matter of making vows, what does righteousness Require, And Jesus says, you know, it just begins with understanding your place in God's economy. That is, in verse 36, he says, You shouldn't make guarantees about things you cannot control. It means taking a needless gamble, and it's evil. So someone might swear, he says, an oath upon their own head. What he means by that is, someone puts their own life as ransom should they fail to keep their vow. He's basically someone who says, on my life, I promise to do something. Jesus says, well, wait a minute. You can't even change the color of one hair on your own head. So how can you assure someone of what you're going to do in the future? What what if circumstances conspire to prevent you? What if you you break both your legs and can't go do what you said you were going to do? What if things change in ways you don't expect? Guess what? You're still committed. God doesn't have exceptions to the vow. Why would you put yourself in that position? That's the point. Oh, and by the way, the example of your hair, that doesn't work so well today, does it? We can change hair color like that now, right? That doesn't change anything, because you're not actually changing the color of your hair, just covering it up. It's, it's still there. So the point is, if you can't control even the least little thing about your body, why put so much risk on yourselves over things you have no hope to control? And Jesus' point is that the, God's word on oaths basically said, don't do it. You know, in all that he said about it, he basically said, "You're going to have to do it, and if you don't do it, you're going to be punished. So implicitly, the law is saying, eh, maybe you shouldn't take oaths, because nowhere in the law does it say you have to. Nowhere is there a requirement to do it. And moreover than that, if your yeses are yes and your nos are no," meaning you're faithful to your intentions, you're an upright, honest person anyway, well, who needs an oath? For what reason would you give an oath? It suggests, doesn't it, that the kind of people who give oaths are the kind of people who have burned you in the past. They're the kind of people who aren't very trustworthy, which is why they have to be more insistent with an oath. And we don't want that kind of reputation. It's all evil. In verse 38, Jesus moves to the mission is law and retribution. I'm just moving through these somewhat quickly because I think you're seeing the pattern. You don't need me to beat a dead horse. So let's look at the last one for today, verse 38, and then we'll put it all together. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to see you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. All right, we're going to look at this quote here. Before we do, let me just make a little aside. You may have had the same experience I've had when it comes to this passage. Have you ever heard somebody who is not either a believer or they certainly don't have much respect for the Word of God come to a passage like this and say, you see, the Bible contradicts itself. Because the Old Testament said eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Jesus is saying that's wrong. It's not that way. And so I've heard it explained a couple ways. You can't trust the Bible. Or as one of my family members used to tell me, The Old Testament doesn't matter anymore, because obviously Jesus said the Old Testament's wrong. And they actually divide the Bible. Has anybody ever had this experience, maybe, with people who who don't get it? But now you can see, I hope, with the pattern that we've been following, Jesus is not undermining anything about the Old Testament. What he's saying is, the Mishnah, the pharisaical view of it, is completely backwards. That the law itself, the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth law, is saying, turn the other cheek but they weren't getting it because they didn't understand it properly. They're not contradictory. They're saying exactly the same thing. How? Let me show you. He quotes here from the Mishnah's take on the law that's in Deuteronomy. It's actually in Exodus twenty-one, twenty-four, And he says, that law in the Mishnah was misused by the Pharisees to promote revenge. When in reality, that law was given to Israel so that they would measure out justice proportionally. The law uses these euphemistic examples of a tooth and an eye. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But notice the comparison that's being made here. The point is, we should not demand something more valuable than what was taken from us. An eye is more valuable to most people than a single tooth. I bet if I asked you which of the two you prefer to lose, I'd get 100% of the people saying, Oh, take, take this tooth. I don't use it very much. Just one over here. You'd never choose to take an eye before you take a tooth, right? That's Jesus' point that an eye being more valuable than a single tooth, you cannot be injured to the degree of a tooth, but ask someone to give up an eye. That's the point. But of course, you know what the Pharisees did with this, right? They took the law hyper-literally, and they turned it into a license for personal vengeance. So according to what they wrote in the Mishnah concerning this law, they said a Jew could take personal revenge against someone who harmed them so long as they only take the body part that was taken in their case. But friends, if you go back and look at the law again, it's clear the Lord is not advocating maiming each other. That's not His desire. He's placing a governor on human tendency to react in sinful ways against those who offend us. And the governor says, you cannot go too far. It's similar to what we've already been studying, right? The certificate of divorce was not endorsing divorce. It was minimizing the collateral damage. The law concerning you know, the, the, the seducing of a woman was not authorizing you to fornicate. It was minimizing the consequences of fornication. And this law was not authorizing you to go maiming people in some kind of vigilante justice. It was setting limits on what vigilantes might do, because God knew how bad we could be. What is the true spirit of this law, then? What's really behind this? It's mercy. The true spirit of this law is mercy. Said another way... If excessive punishment is a sin, and this law is trying to stop them, then what's the opposite of that sin? It would be showing someone undeserved favor, or as we would say, grace. That's what righteousness would be. God's heart is to encourage mercy for those who are offended, or, or offend us. So Jesus says, if you want to follow the spirit of this law, then here's how you'd actually behave. You would have no interest in retribution whatsoever. You know, some of these other laws might have seemed a bit remote to some of us, but I bet this one hits home for some people in this room, for all of us to some degree, right? Who in here has not been harmed by somebody? Even if it's just an email that came across your desk and you thought, that's so and so? And they cc'd my boss, <laughs> right? Or some, somebody cut you off in traffic. I mean, how many different ways in a day can someone offend you? It's probably limitless, right? Jesus says, let them strike you and don't strike back. Respond to their unreasonable requests by surprising them with your generous return. When they borrow and don't return, let them borrow again. When they impose upon you with their unreasonable requests, just respond as though that's what you wanted to do anyway. And no, I'm not turning into Joel Olstein. What I'm saying is, this is what that law required in its spirit. The spirit of that law is to be generous in response to those who offend. Do not ask more than necessary. In fact, ask the least. Now, if you're hearing this list of Well, I've got to give to people who hurt me, and I've got to let them borrow the weed whacker after they lost my lawnmower. I mean, I can't keep doing this, right? And so you're sitting here with this list in your mind, you're thinking, are there any exceptions to this, Steve? I mean, like seven times is the limit. How many times? Well, if you're thinking like that, I get it, but you're still thinking like a Pharisee. Instead of looking for ways to limit your obedience to God's Word, we need to embrace the spirit of what He's saying. Righteousness means looking like God, not like ourselves. So the right question you should be asking right now is, how would God respond in these situations? You know, the old adage, what would Jesus do? And then ask yourself, do I do those things? For example, what did Jesus do when he was slapped on the cheek? And he was. He was beaten. Was he deserving of that attack? Did he have the right to respond to his attackers? He hadn't done anything wrong, right? So, so he could have responded. Could he have retaliated and still been righteous? You know what? The answer to that is no. And do you know why? Because it wouldn't have been in keeping with the Father's will. And that's the point. It's the Father's will and our obedience to that will that determines our righteousness. Not our adherence to some silly set of rules that somebody made up. It's what the Father wants for us and our obedience to that desire that defines righteousness. In Jesus' case, he had some legal right to respond, but that's not the point. The righteousness that God expected of His Son, demanded that He go to the cross, though He didn't deserve it, and complete the plan of redemption so that we could sit here today in the salvation that He gave to us. And if He had struck back at His attackers, that whole plan goes south. is over. It's done. Now, can you live like Jesus did? Can you live with eyes for eternity? Can you make decisions now that support an eternal purpose, even if it doesn't give you satisfaction here and now? I mean, can you lose another lawnmower to that neighbor who doesn't ever return it, or whatever they do? Or you know, can you take another insult from that person without responding? If what you're doing it for is righteousness, that is, for pleasing Christ and not yourself, if you put it in an eternal frame of mind, and then add to that, by the way, the reality that there are eternal rewards on the line for how we do these things, well then, that lawnmower or email doesn't really matter so much anymore. Now the test is, can I follow the Word of God? That's what we're all here to do. Now, as you listen to the examples I just gave about being kind to people who are unkind to you, I bet you heard them from the perspective of the injured party. The one offended. Right? That's the natural place you put yourself when you think about this passage, right? But have you ever considered that you're the offender? Even more sobering, have you considered that you were an offender to God himself? That is to say, as a sinner, the Bible says, you offend God. We all do. That is, before coming to Christ, before we received His mercy, we were an offense to God. Now, in a day of the past, I'm assuming I'm talking to Christians for the moment, in a day in the past, when you came to the knowledge of Christ, you recognized your need for mercy, you came to Him seeking His mercy in faith... In that moment, do you understand that you were the one demanding things from God that you had no right to have? You're the one in this example right now in that circumstance. You're the one who's saying, I want your coat and your shirt. I want your lawnmower and your weed whacker. I want everything I want from you. And I'm the one with the problem. Like the neighbor that we don't like or the coworker, or whatever. That's what this example is pointing to. You were the evil person. And how did God respond to you? Jesus did not resist you. He did not turn his back on you. When you called for mercy, he gave it. You were the one who asked Jesus, in a sense, to walk a mile with you. And you know what he did? He surprised you with his generosity. Because when you were asking him to forgive you for your sins, he went a long way beyond that. More than just forgiving you, the Bible says that he adopted you as a child of God. That he made you part of his family. He made you a fellow heir in the kingdom. He promised you a place in his government. He promised that he would share his inheritance with you. He put his spirit in you so that you could have access to the mind of Christ. I mean, you didn't have any of that on your plan. You just said, can you keep me out of hell, please? Jesus went the extra mile for you and for me because that's what love, that's what mercy looks like. So how can you and I refuse the Lord when he asks us to just be his hands and feet in this lost and dying world to some other neighbor or coworker or friend who's now the offender to us? You know, there's been more than a few people, I'm sure, who have been brought into the kingdom through the influence of someone who was just kind to them when they weren't being very kind in response. How can you refuse to live according to the spirit of this law when you know Jesus has already accomplished the letter of it for you? If you're searching for, let's say, the big takeaway from this chapter, let me say it plainly. Heaven is a tall order, taller than you can reach. You can't get there on your own, because you can't measure up. But Jesus could and did. And so now in faith, we earn, we receive His earned righteousness. And now we're called to live as a disciple, which means seeking to please Him, to represent Him. And so the takeaway from this chapter is, You cannot do that effectively. You cannot represent Him and be His disciple effectively if your walk with Him reverts back to following rules that were worthless in the first place, that couldn't get you to heaven in the beginning, much less make you sanctified now. Stop listening to other people's do's and don'ts, especially if it comes out of the church. Because in my experience, there's a lot of that going on, a lot of Mishnah-like thinking out there that says what you can and can't do and how it relates to righteousness... But if it's not specifically stated in Scripture, it's somebody else's rule. doesn't mean it's always wrong, but nor, neither does it mean it's a prescription for everyone. And that's where we get off the track. You know, I've been in churches where there's a lot of, well, to call it, legalism. Where what they want to see is a person in the body of Christ who sort of looks a certain way. And if you vary off that too much, they want to push you back into that mold. And yet, the things they're worried about aren't biblical or at least not a matter of righteousness they're just personal preference meanwhile while they're too busy trying to fix the things in your life that they think should be fixed what they don't realize is that the lord's been speaking to your heart about the fact that you're fooling around on your wife in other words there's real issues in your life that do need to get addressed and the lord knows them and he's working on them but you're too distracted by the people around you in church who are telling you that you know you really shouldn't read harry potter I'm just using an example from the past, right? I'm just saying, suddenly that's the hot issue and we get everybody off what they really should be doing, which is listening to the Spirit of the Lord in His Word and in their heart where righteousness resides. And they're listening with an intent to obey because they know it's God talking to them, not someone whose own ideas of righteousness happen to clash with theirs. So the answer is, get into the Word and stay there. And as you do, you're going to be amazed by two things. First, you're going to be continually humbled by how far you are from the standards of righteousness that Christ requires. I mean, it's inevitable. I'm sorry. You you can be a Christian for 40 years, but if you go into the Word properly, you'll come out of it saying, man, i got a long way to go. And that's okay, because when you clearly understand why Jesus had to die for you, why you had no chance of your own to get to heaven, that recognition will serve to increase your appreciation for the grace that you've received in Christ. You You will grow in grace. You will love grace all the more. And the second thing that you'll be amazed by as you continue studying the Bible, you'll be amazed by how much your heart is changing over time. You're going to find yourself thinking differently and acting differently in time. And almost instinctively, you will begin living by the spirit of what the word asks of you, even when you couldn't have followed the letter of it before you knew Christ. Things that used to be hard won't be so hard anymore. You know, the Bible talks about God giving you the desires of your heart. And if you twist that the wrong way, it sounds like it says he's going to give you what you want, which is false. To give you the desires of your heart means to put in your heart desires that you need to have. Simple story, and I'm done, but... There was a time before I knew the Lord When I was Yeah, I'd swear like anyone I was in the military It was kind of part of the job And And it was just You know, you just did it Now today This is a bad example in some ways Because today everyone swears No one cares It's a shame But that's the way life has turned, right? But there was a day 30 years ago When it didn't hear quite as much And I became a Christian The Lord saved me And in the short time after that I stopped swearing And I'll tell you how Because every time a word would come out of my mouth I didn't feel good No one said to stop The thing is this, you did it in the beginning because it made you feel good in some perverse way. When it stopped feeling good, well, there went the motivation to do it. What did God do? He gave me the desire of my heart, which was to be pure in that way, rather than to be profane. He does that to all of us in a myriad of areas of our life, right? Why did that change happen? Because some church gave me a rule? Because I wanted to look more Christian to my friends? Or because God changed my heart? Now it was in the Word, in a concerted effort to listen to the Lord, that I came to something I wouldn't have come to otherwise. And it was easy. Meaning, I didn't have to work at it, it just happened. I'm not saying everything in life is easy, but I'm saying that process happens more often than you realize. The key is, you need fuel for that engine of change. And the fuel is the Word of God. If you see that happening, this amazing change inside you, That recognition will serve to increase your love for Christ and your devotion to him. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the work that it does in our hearts. Thank you for freeing us from so many things in our life that cause us pain and sorrow, leading us to hurt other people or just to hurt ourselves. But as we come to you and we come to you in an honest way, looking at the spirit of what you say and wrestling with the things that you tell us must be to be righteous. Father, we, we feel some of that resistance falling away. We, we recognize that we have uh, we've not listened in the past, but we, we want to listen, Father. We want to hear you. We don't want to spend the, the few decades you give us here on this earth squandering that in selfish pursuits, fighting over things with other people that don't matter. Concealing the love you put in us, so that we can get our way, Father. What, what good would that be? What, what's the point in that? When we hear what Jesus says in this sermon, it starts to reckon, we start to recognize that, to the extent we've lived that way, it's just been a waste of time. One day we're going to meet the Jesus we read about, and when we meet Him, Father, we want to stand before Him, just just amazed at His glory and so thankful for the work He's done in our heart in bringing us to that moment. Obviously, we we don't stand there except by him, but even as we stand there, Father, we want to come with a good testimony. So thank you, Lord, for the reminder that that testimony matters, that the word is the means by which we obtain it, by our obedience to that word, and for an opportunity tonight, Father, perhaps to reset that walk a little, to come before you in humility and to pray with others who care for you and care for us and Father, give us courage, give us humility to come up and do what we need to do tonight, Father. And for any who have heard the gospel tonight, that Jesus alone is our Savior, that Jesus alone brings us to the Father, that no one comes to the Father but through Him, and that a confession of faith is required, but that's all that's necessary. Father, if that is news to someone in here, please and touch their heart, Father, as only you can. And bring them forward, let their faith be made certain, and let their confession be heard.